you often hear preachers and teachers complain, complain might be a little bit too strong of a word, about the text or the topic that they've been assigned for that Sunday. I'm feeling it a little bit because Todd Pickett and Dennis got to preach on the topic of rest. Who could say anything bad about rest? And I'm here to lead you today in reflecting on loss. Not only that, for those of you with relatively good memory, the gospel episode that we read, that we just read, was the subject of Todd's message almost exactly a year ago entitled, Following Jesus into a Storm. It's a great message. It was one of my favorite messages from last year. And I will tell you, I was tempted momentarily. <laughs> and see what happens. How many of you guys really do have good memories? To just read Todd's message, hoping that no one would notice, rather than proceed with this unenviable task of preaching on a same text as Todd Hunter. What can I possibly say that Todd couldn't say better? But context is everything. And today, it's all about context. Our communal journey during what we are calling our summer together is to acknowledge that we as a church are ending one chapter of our story and moving into the next. But we are in that, I don't know, you know, if you would imagine a book that sometimes the, you know, the, the chapter ends and they can't really figure out how to get the next page started, so there's like a blank page. We're in that blank page with the ending of the last chapter, but before the beginning of the next. We need to acknowledge this. Because in order for us to do this well, we have to travel through this uncomfortable middle. We have to be in the cocoon. We have, in essence, followed Jesus onto the boat, leaving behind the certainty of secure land, not fully knowing if we're ready to deal with the winds and the waves, let alone the next place where Jesus is taking us. So, it is one thing to imagine and prepare oneself for the journey into the tumultuous waters. It is another to be in it. How this story now reads us, if you let it, is very different from how we read it a year ago. The image that kept coming into my mind was when at the beginning of C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the children are brought into Narnia, if you will remember, not by walking through a wardrobe in that book, but as they're looking into the painting of a ship that's at sail already. At one moment, they're looking at the painting. At another, they're in the waters, in the ship, part of the story. This story about Jesus in the boat with his disciples winds up being, indeed, our story. In fact, the church has long thought itself as being on a journey with Jesus in a ship. The central space of a church is still called a nave, not for the belly button, but for navis, the Latin word for ship. Even this chapel, if you look at the ceilings, 
it still looks like an upside down ship. And I believe that the gospel writers' intentions, they're hinted at quite a few times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in, to have the readers think about ourselves as being on a journey with Jesus on this boat. Now, this also means that we deal with this passage more communally rather than individually. In this sense, the storms that you encounter are not just yours. They are ours. We are in this together. We journey caring for one another. In one sense, that's part of the reason why we are all sitting here wearing name tags today. Not only does this um, help us with the awkwardness of having to ask somebody else's, or not having to ask for somebody else's name that you've been sitting next to for like six months and you introduce yourself to them and you've forgotten. We all do that. But it also helps us to remember that we are to know one another as a community, that we don't just sit here as an audience, but we sit here in fellowship, in community. That's why this is what we're doing. We are in this together. So then, let's imagine ourselves to be in this boat. It is dark. It is already past the evening, it says. You have plenty of experience on these waters, though. And the waters are relatively calm. Some of you are fishermen by trade. So we know how to navigate through these waters, even by the stars, and perhaps the hills and the lights and the moon. And Jesus is on this boat with us. He's even relaxing, sleeping in the back. Maybe some of you begin to doze off as well in the boat, not right now. It is quiet on the waters now. The first pass of the wind doesn't really concern you. It might even be a little refreshing in the warm night. But when a big wave hits the side of your little boat and makes your stomach bounce, adrenaline shoots through your system, and all of your experience now tells you that this situation is no longer safe. And this is where we find ourselves. So this is where we need to linger a little bit. It might seem obvious, but every transition, especially when they include letting go of someone or something that has been meaningful to you, that has provided you with a sense of good, a sense of stability in your life, feels like a storm. This middle space, this uncomfortable, unresolved place of uncertainty, pre-arrival, we instinctively want to go back to where we began as if that was even a possibility. Think of the Israelites longing for Egypt during the Exodus. Or, more often, we try to fast forward to where we think we should be to skip over this phase. I will have to say that this latter approach is probably my tendency for most of my life. 
for most of my life, I've rarely paused for transitions, whether personally or professionally. It was just not something that I found, my, found it comfortable doing. In fact, I prided myself a little bit in, I prided myself a lot in taking people through transitions and changes really fast. I have former church members who still remind me till this day just how quickly I wanted for changes to take place. I may or may not have used the words, just rip the bandage off, <laughs> but it certainly could have been used to describe my approach to change in my earlier years. In fact, some of you guys have heard this personal story. When, before we came here, I've been pastoring for many years and came to a point in which there was burnout, lots of hurt, lots of disappointment, lots of loss. And I stepped down from this ministry that I was part of uh, in different ways for almost 16 years at that time. I'd never, ever, ever taken a sabbatical, or nor uh, did I even want one. I didn't even like taking vacations, my wife will tell you. And I stepped down and I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm gonna take about a month off. I'm gonna start uh, looking for a different position, but I'll take about a month off and kind of just ease back into it. And my wife looked at me that time and she said, if you start working at another church, Jen, we're not going with you. I was stunned. Uh, my lack of desire to stay in the middle, uh, my inability to be in that place that caused me to reflect and actually consider and pause and think about my place with God and who I was and my identity, where I actually had to do that was so uncomfortable that I had avoided it. I realized I had avoided it through all those years and it had built up. And it required my wife to tell me that, for that dam to break. I learned the hard way that just because you get through the change, or you bring people through the change, doesn't mean that you have brought people through a transition to receive and accept a new reality. We are meant to go through the middle. For the middle, for all its fretfulness and uncertainty, is a fertile place. You know this from looking back in your life. But there's work to be done in the middle. My kids and I were watching a movie this week, not at the museum, just in case anybody cares. Um, and the main character, it was a good movie. Uh, it was a good, we actually watched all three of them. Um, great trilogy, um, no real spoilers. It's about a night at the museum. <laughs> All three of them, yeah. Um, and there was a night guardsman, that's the main character of the stories. And in the first movie, there's this point at which he experiences massive failure. 
and he wants to call it quits. He wants to resign. He wants to just give it up. Is that down point, that middle point in the movie? And my son turns to me at that point with this rather despondent look on his face, and he says, I don't like it when they do this. They always have the main character go through a sad part. It's true. And, you know, I had a couple of thoughts that went through my head. And first thing I thought was, wow, this is Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Common to all comparative mythology where the hero of the journey undergoes a crisis, a reckoning point that will lead to his eventual triumph. And I was so proud of my son for, for noticing this pattern. But I didn't say that. I did say, but Max, how will he learn and become better? In other words, how do we ever come to know what we don't know until we are brought to a place where we have to confess, I don't know? I don't know. Now, I will confess that this comment, this question that I asked my son, probably belongs in the category of easier said than practiced. That things that parents say. The fact of the matter is, I don't really like the sad parts either. We're open to change in principle, but we resist it in practice. Most of us do. Yet transformation happens in the middle as we are pressed to the margins. In our liminality, we let go of our frameworks, imaginations, limitations of what is possible because they no longer work to become open to experiencing God in a new and a deeper way. Indeed, this is what happens in the boat. I actually love how Mark sets up the scene. In the preceding scenes in the text, chapters 1, 2, and 3, even earlier parts of chapter 4, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom and performing miracles rather steadily, okay? This is not the first miracle that he performs. This is not the first time he, he did something amazing that reveals who he is. There is a sort of a progressive, growing awareness, an inkling that Jesus might be more than a rabbi, more than a prophet. Maybe there's something else that's growing, that they're beginning to ask, that the disciples are beginning to ask, because the categories are breaking. But on this boat, what you experience is an actual tipping point, where they begin to open their eyes to see Jesus' divinity. So what did they really experience? Did they just experience a person say to the winds and, and show their power as if it was some sort of a superhero from the old ancient times? I think it's a lot more than that. It is not a stretch to say that there are echoes of Genesis 1 all over this story. In the beginning, the Spirit of the Lord, the wind of the Lord, was hovering over the waters, the storm of chaos that represents the uncreated reality. And with one command, there's no battle, there's no debate, 
But with a simple command, God creates a new world out of chaos. And so it is, as the wind moves over the dark waters, the disciples witness Jesus command the wind and the waves. No argument, no battle, a simple command to be quiet, be still. And chaos retreats, order is created, and a new reality is revealed. In such moments, we are conditioned by our modern minds to ask how. How is this possible? But the disciples ask, who? We ask how he could have still the waves. The disciples are instructing us to ask Who, who is this that even the wind and the water obey? Because here, caught in the boat in the middle of a furious storm, in the midst of the darkness, in this space in between, they now know. And it is he that is on the boat with them and a brand new framework of reality shapes the disciples, and they are rightly terrified at this realization. They're rightly terrified at this incredible realization. It is this very reality, one whose fullness we witness in Revelation chapter 21, this powerful, hope-imbuing picture of the nearness of the creator God that pulls us forward even in the worst of storms, that gives the disciples, that gives us the hope for our journey. So what then does it look like for us to go through this journey together with Jesus in this picture? What does a worship practice look like that helps us to get through the middle with this picture in mind? Well, if we allow the scriptures to be our guide, it certainly doesn't mean that we now deny our fears. It certainly doesn't mean that we deny our loss. And it certainly doesn't mean that we deny our emotions or or act like the storms no longer bother us. That's not the practice of hope. Instead, when you look at a prayer like Psalm 73 that we read for today, I see two things that I think are very helpful for us to practice, to guide us. First, we are encouraged to be absolutely honest about our feelings, our losses. And second, we're encouraged to see the bigger picture. First, there was the honesty about the loss, the pain. Verse 21 says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. This is what the psalmist is saying. I was so hurt, I was so bitter in my spirit, that I couldn't even find the words to pray to you. 
I was numb. Many of you know this feeling. I can't even pray turns out to be a prayer. But second, we are shown that our fears, our losses, our pains, and our tears do not have the final say. This is the picture that has been given to us in our reading from Mark, from Revelation 21, and in this psalm, and throughout the Bible, the middle resolves, always resolves to this picture of beauty, of God's nearness with his people. So it is this that the psalmist says, yet, and this is the psalmist speaking, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. I read that verse many times over because I thought I wasn't understanding it correctly. It says, I am always with you. I, I keep on thinking, I think the psalmist should probably say, but he is, but you are always with me. I think that's what he should say. But, you know, when you are going through the middle, you are overwhelmed. This is a place of being overwhelmed by your feelings and your emotions and your sense of what you're going through. And you, to be able to confess at that point, to, to know I am still with you is an incredible statement of faith on the one hand. The other, hand, the other way of looking at it, I realize, is, you know, that's what I think a child would say also. I'm with you. Yeah, the parent is the one that's hovering over and making sure that the child is safe, making sure and caring and nurturing for the child. But the child is the one that says, I am here with you, and that makes me feel safe. And says this, you hold me by my right hand. Indeed, I think this is a picture of a child who is just being held. When our kids were smaller, when they would cry, or when they would be hurt or disappointed or whatever they were going through, you don't try to reason with them. You don't have to try to say, it's okay in the big picture of things, it's not that important. You just hold them. And I think that's what's happening here. And that is enough. And that's the bigger framework. That's the bigger picture that we ought to see. Be honest about our losses. And to see the bigger picture. I am here with you. So I thought about this then. What does this mean for our season of transition at Holy Trinity? How do we begin to voice and talk about the losses, begin to talk about the losses that we might be feeling and acknowledge at church? Now, I want to say the losses in this time of transition of being in the middle, in the broader perspective of all the, the different sorts of losses that we experience in life, I think we all know to keep it in perspective, and we're talking about certain things that, that we know are really 
small in the broader scale of things. We know this, yet they are still losses for us as a community. And I want for us to make sure that we understand that, I wanna make sure that you understand to put this, that I wanna place it in the right context of things. It might even just be very simple things. For me, I wake up on Sundays and I've been saying for the last couple of weeks, I miss Todd. <laughs> it was hard working on this sermon because I kept on hearing his voice on this text. <laughs> and I try to shut it off. I miss Todd. I know I will see him. I get to work with him. I will talk to him. I got a phone conversation. But that doesn't take away from this feeling. I miss Debbie. I miss her ease. I miss her hugs. I miss the kind of um, very straightforward and honest conversations that I felt like I could have with her. I miss Beth. A moment ago when I said, the picture is that of a child just being held. When I wrote that down, in this, uh, in my manuscript, it was funny because I just heard Beth saying it. <laughs> it's one of those Beth sayings, and I couldn't help but hear her voice. I will miss the Holy Trinity of old. Those are all losses that we can acknowledge. But I also know that there is a bigger picture, that we are held in hope, for we are not in the middle on this boat by ourselves. This new reality that breaks in with Christ's presence in our lives continues to draw us in into this incredible picture that will find its ultimate fulfillment with the awareness that indeed we have nothing to fear. For God makes his dwelling place with his people.